beginning on, on 28. So let's read, uh, Lord, say 28, as it's found on 50, page 57, concerning the Holy Supper of our Lord Jesus Christ. How art thou admonished and assured in the Lord's Supper that thou art a partaker of that one sacrifice of Christ accomplished on the cross and of all his benefits? Answer, that Christ has commanded me and all believers to eat of this broken bread and to drink of this cup in remembrance of him, adding these promises. First, that his body was offered and broken on the cross for me, and his blood shed for me, as certainly as I see with my eyes the bread of the Lord broken for me and the cup communicated to me. And further, that he feeds and nourishes my soul to everlasting life with his crucified body and shed blood, as assuredly as I receive from the hands of the minister and taste with my mouth the bread and cup of the Lord as certain signs of the body and blood of Christ. What is it then to eat the crucified body and drink the shed blood of Christ? It is not only to embrace with a believing heart all the sufferings and death of Christ, and thereby to obtain the pardon of sin and life eternal, but also besides that to become more and more united to his sacred body by the Holy Ghost who dwells both in Christ and in us, so that we, though Christ is in heaven and we on earth, are notwithstanding flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone, and that we live and are governed forever by one spirit as members of the same body are by one soul." Where is Christ promised that he will as certainly feed and nourish believers with his body and blood as they eat of this broken bread and drink of this cup? In the institution of the Lord's Supper, which is thus expressed, the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as often as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. This promise is repeated by the Holy Apostle Paul when he says, The cup of blessing which we bless is not the communion. Is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. Continuing on page 60, Lord's Day 29. Do then the bread and wine become the very body and blood of Christ? Not at all, but as the water in baptism is not changed into the blood of Christ, neither is the washing away of sin itself, being only the sign and confirmation thereof appointed of God. So the bread of the Lord's Supper is not changed into the very body of Christ, though agreeably to the nature and properties of sacraments, it is called the body of Christ. Christ Jesus. 
Why then doth Christ call the bread his body and the cup his blood, or the new covenant in his blood, and Paul the communion of the body and blood of Christ? Christ speaks thus not without great reason, namely not only thereby to teach us that as bread and wine support this temporal life, so his crucified body and shed blood are the true meat and drink whereby our souls are fed to eternal life, but more especially by these visible signs and pledges to assure us that we are as really partakers of his true body and blood by the operation of the Holy Ghost as we receive by the mouths of our bodies these holy signs in remembrance of him and that all his sufferings and obedience are as certainly ours as if we had in our own persons suffered and made satisfaction for our sins to God. Now, congregation, when we seek to understand our confessions, it's always proper that we remember the context in which we were, they were written. Where you read the Belgic Confession by that great reformer Guido de Bray, you need to remember he was seeking to uh, respond to the errors of Roman Catholicism and Anabaptism. And this influenced the emphasis of that confession upon the true church and the need to be a, a member of it. Likewise, when we read the canons of Dort, we understand that the great fathers of that synod, they sought to respond thoroughly to the errors of Arminianism and semi-Pelagianism, seeking to denigrate the sovereignty of God and salvation. But this uh, Heidelberg Catechism, though uh, it may seem less polemical, less argumentative and its spirit, yet it also has a context of responding to errors. You see the author, Zacharias Ursinus, he was one who was seeking to articulate the reformed position regarding the Lord's Supper. It was not for many of the things in the Heidelberg Catechism that caused many of the confessors of this catechism to be persecuted or deposed or otherwise enduring trials within the land of modern-day Germany, but it was specifically for this. The Lutherans, though in many ways confessing the truth, departed from scriptural teaching on this point, teaching that we partake of the body and blood of Christ with our mouths at the Lord's table. Physically, as the body and blood is in some way in and under the elements of bread and wine. And for that reason, they taught that anyone, regardless of the presence of faith, yet partakes of the body and blood of Christ. Ursinus was endeavoring through these two articles to make so abundantly clear these two Lord's Days that no, the proper way to understand scriptural teaching concerning the Lord's Supper is that we receive Jesus Christ not with our mouths, but with our hearts. 
Yes, that as we feast upon this visible sign and seal the sacrament of the New Testament, by faith we have the promises of the gospel confirmed to us. Here is the teaching here, and it's not merely in order to respond to uh, arguments. It's not merely to refute objections to scriptural teaching. It is also in uh, our own practical lives as Christians to rightly receive this blessed sacrament. It's for this reason that I direct your attention to one verse in particular that you'd notice our confession draws us to in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 16. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Oh, with the Lord's help as we seek to rightly receive this sacrament, let us consider the theme, the sacrament of communion. The sacrament of communion. And we will... See how this text unfolds exactly what our catechism expresses to us so well in these two Lord's Days. Seeing first uh, the sacrament questioned, second affirmed, and third enjoyed. Well, first, you notice that it is questioned. Our verse is put in the form of a question. The cup of blessing which we bless is it not the communion of the blood of Christ, the bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Well, sometimes you ask a question because you want to know the answer. You simply don't know. Maybe children, you've uh, heard your parents ask that sometimes. Where did I leave the car keys? Well, that's a question that maybe they want to know the answer to. They, they don't know. But how about another question? Didn't I tell you to clean your room? Well, there's a question. I don't think your, your parents are confused at all about whether they did or didn't. They want to remind you of something important that, that maybe you have forgotten. Well, that's also what's going on in this chapter of the Bible. You see, Paul is a faithful pastor and minister of the word as well as an apostle of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he is dealing with a serious problem facing the people in the church of Corinth. Namely, some of them are tempted to engage in idolatry. Idolatry. And perhaps we live in a society and in a day where idolatry seems to be no great thing. Maybe we're... Uh, driving even through our own city, um, down Rectory Street, heading east on Hamilton Road, and we see all of these uh, Buddhist idols and statues outside their temple, and we don't even give it another thought. We don't, we don't think to pray for those people engaged in idolatry. We don't think about how heinous and wicked this is in the sight of God, that men and women should actually worship idols. And so it is our society, not even considering it, not worrying about it. Sometimes even people in the church seeing those things as a matter not to be worried about. Indeed, 
The Bible teaches us very plainly that it is a great and a wicked thing to worship idols. You notice how he puts it there in verse 20. But I say that the things which the devil sacrificed, they sacrificed to devils and not to God. And I would not that ye should have fellowship with devils. Well, maybe say that the, the Buddhist doesn't believe that he's worshiping devils. Well, Paul says whether that's what they sincerely believe or not, that is what is actually happening. There's a demonic power at work. And the devil himself and his, his army of demons, they themselves are receiving worship through this gross transgression of God. And they broaden that application and say that all false churches that worship images or incorporate images in their worship also worship the devils, whether they be Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholic, High Anglican, or whatever it may be. It is demonic. It is wicked. It is heinous. And so Paul here is impressing this upon his readers. And I wonder sometimes where we are frustrated with the church of Jesus Christ, even the church that we may be a part of, we ought to remember the forbearance and the love which the apostle displays here, where even such heinous sins as this were, were at uh, issue. Yet he endures and patiently exhorts them to forbear in this. Notice how it's uh, put there earlier on in the text. He says, Wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. Verse 14. That's the overall context of the argument. We'll consider more about that in the afternoon service. But you notice it's in this context that the matter of the Lord's Supper comes up. You see, I think he's trying to express upon them that this matter of the idolatry is not just a matter of culture. It's not a matter indifferent, though indeed the idol itself may not have supernatural powers, as some of the superstitious believed. Yet there is a spiritual power at work. And to join yourself in such worship is to partake of that wicked sin. And so he says in verse 21 and 22, ye cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. Ye cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and the table of devils. Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? That's an important matter, you see. These two things are incompatible because as he expresses in our text in verse 16, the cup of blessing which we bless. Is it not the communion of the blood of Christ, the bread which we break? Is it not the communion of the body of Christ? The argument is a very straightforward one. That if we would consider what a holy and a high privilege it is to worship God in the Lord's Supper, we would at once shrink back from any competitor from any substitute of the true worship of our Lord Jesus Christ through those visible things that he has instituted. Oh, indeed, is this not the plague that has led so many churches astray? 
The people you see cannot be captivated through the things that the Bible gives us, not through a bit of preaching, not through some scripture reading, not through some bread and wine, not through a bit of water in the, in the baptism. No, these things are not spectacular enough. Surely we need to have elaborate instruments to draw a crowd. Surely we need to have great events and great spectacles. Maybe puppet shows, maybe dance recitals. And so it goes. And so many churches depart from the ordinance of Christ. And yet where we would rightly think, would rightly think about these things, meditate about what an awesome supernatural reality is at work. Have we forgotten? Have we forgotten that to rightly receive even this ordinance of the Lord's Supper is no tradition merely. It is no mere ritual. It is not just something we do out of habit or custom. No, Christ himself draws close unto us through his ordinances. I tell you, for the true child of God, They delight to worship him in spirit and in truth, according to what his will is. Not the worship of their own will, but the will of the head and king of the church. This is is what's sweet to the believer. For it is there where he meets us. It is there where he communes with us. It is there, sinner, where you may find your Savior. Not in the great big crowd, not in the ways of the world, not according to the inventions and doctrines of man. No, according to the worship that Christ himself appointed for us. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Well, we've seen the question. Let's also consider the affirmation. This is phrased in a question, but the point is that this is beyond dispute. This is certain. This is very clear. This is the nature of the Lord's Supper. It is about communion, the sacrament of communion. You see, this is what it's about. It's about a unique kind of participation, joining, and sharing. Let me explain this through a biblical example if you would turn to the book of Acts. The book of Acts chapter 2. And there at the conclusion of Peter's great Pentecost sermon at verse 40. We read there, and with many other words, he did testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. Fellowship, same word. It's used in our text of 1 Corinthians 10 for communion, fellowship, and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And all that believed were together and had all things common and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need 
And they continued daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. I think it's very clear. What is it that this word means when you see it in that concrete lived reality of the church? Well, there is a closeness here, not just the closeness that you may have with a business partner, or someone, or with something you may have with someone who's part of the same bowling club. No, there is being forged here a spiritual communion, a spiritual participation among these believers. For you see, they are brought into the church of Jesus Christ, and there is a unity and a mutual sharing of a common life one with another. You notice how they are of one mind. You notice how they share their possessions in common. How they break bread with one another from house to house. How they pray with one another and hold steadfastly to the apostles' doctrine. Oh, is this not what we pray for and yearn for? That we may be a true church of Jesus Christ. That the communion of the saints would not just be a line in our confession, but it may be a live reality. How oh, do you treasure the saints of the church, your brothers and sisters in the Lord? Do you desire indeed to have a close fellowship with them, to fellowship and to commune with them in a shared life of service and, service and worship unto the Lord? We see that. We see that in in one sense, it's very mysterious. In one way, it's very supernatural. A great work of God is at work here. These strangers who just happened to be hearing the preaching of Peter on the day of Pentecost are now forged together in a new communion. But if we would look at that and then consider the text here, we can see what is Taking place, the cup of blessing which we bless. Is it not the communion, the fellowship, the sharing of the blood of Christ, the bread which we break? Is it not the communion of the body of Christ? See, it's not merely that we share with one another, that we are now joined to other believers, but we're joined unto this one, the Christ. The great one who came in the fullness of time to redeem his people. This very one who endured the suffering on Calvary's cross for his people. Oh, you remember, do you not, on that night in which he was betrayed, he took that wine and he took that bread. And he said, this is about me. This is about what I'm about to do here. This wine is my blood here. This bread is my broken body. Take it and drink. Take it and eat. I am your great spiritual feast. You must feed upon me and upon what I shall do. It is about Christ. It is about fellowship with this person. Oh, how terrible it may be. You may be part of a church family. You may have great fellowship, great friendship with those who confess the name of Christ. But do you have fellowship with Christ himself? 
Oh, wouldn't it be an awful thing, an awful thing to have separated yourself from the very greatest of the family of God, the great older brother of this spiritual fellowship, this one who through his very suffering and death has birthed the church into existence, this very one who has poured forth his spirit on the basis of his finished work upon the cross. Oh, I would not have you to be a stranger unto Christ this morning, for he draws so close unto you, not only today through the preaching of the word, but through the ordinance of the supper. He would have fellowship with you, you see, the very creator of the universe, the very I am that I am, the loveliest of 10,000, this one who is the brightness of his father's glory, This one who is the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. This one who is the victor over the devil, death, and the grave. This one who is coming again soon to bring about all things new. He says unto you, dear one, I would commune with you. And here is how he would do it, not upon our own terms, but on his own terms. The head of the church says, this is how it is to be done. Indeed, through my ordinance of prayer, that you support your supplications honestly before the throne of grace. Indeed, through my word, as you listen for my voice, speaking unto you through every verse of Scripture but also through this, through the visible sign, the visible gospel that we see at work here. Does not our catechism uh, explain this so very well in question 79? Why then doth Christ call the bread his, his body and the cup his blood or the new covenant in his blood and Paul the communion of the body and blood of Christ? Christ speaks thus not without great reason, namely, not only thereby to teach us that as bread and wine support this temporal life, so this crucified body and shed blood are the true meat and drink, whereby our souls are fed to eternal life but more especially by these visible signs and pledges to assure us that we are as really partakers of his true body and blood by the operation of the Holy Ghost as we receive by the mouths of our bodies these holy signs in remembrance of him and all his sufferings and obedience are as certainly ours as if we had in our own persons suffered and made satisfaction for our sins to God. Oh, it should be a source of wonder, a source of delight, a source of praise that we are reminded here, not only through the word, but through the sacrament, that we may feed upon Christ and receive all of his benefits, that we are righteous before the Father in the tribunal of God, not on the basis of our works, not on the basis of what we have done, but what Christ has done for us upon the cross. Truly, Christ spoke in John 6, verse 54, Whosoever eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, 
and I in him. Beautiful words. He dwells in me and I dwell in him. The closest union and bond is forged through the work of Jesus Christ. And so we feed upon Christ daily. Daily. Not merely in the sacrament, no. But every day where we apply unto Christ in faith, where we trust in him in faith, where we receive him in faith, where we rest in him in faith, there is the feast provided, and there is the feasting of the sinner upon suitable meat and drink for our weary souls, that refreshment, that nourishment, that growth, that vitality of having Christ as our Savior. Oh, it is a blessed thing also where the one who has truly trusted in Christ may come together. All of the body of Christ, all true believers who have made a confession of faith, both in word and in heart, may gather together here, confessing corporately, visibly, that our life is not found in ourselves. It is found in the one who sits at the right hand of the Father. It is found in the Lamb who was slain. It is found in this one, the great victor and the great champion over the devil and the savior of his people. Oh, I would speak a word unto you about enjoying this supper. Enjoying it. Oh, it would be an awful thing if you would receive it in a casual and a light manner. It would be an awful thing as well. An awful thing as well. If you would not enjoy this comfort and peace in your souls because your heart wavers and doubts at that moment. Oh, indeed, it is in ourselves that we see all manner of weakness, all manner of insufficiency, all manner of falling short of the glory of God. We are not worthy, surely, in ourselves to come to the Lord's Supper. How is that anyone may dare to have this ordinance. Well, is it not rightly spoken in question and answer 76? What is it then to eat the crucified body and drink the shed blood of Christ? Answer, it is not only to embrace with a believing heart all the sufferings and death of Christ and thereby to obtain the pardon of sin and life eternal, but also besides that to become more and more united to his sacred body by the Holy Ghost who dwells both in Christ and in us, so that we through Christ is so that we, though Christ is in heaven and we on earth are notwithstanding flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone, and that we live and are governed forever by one spirit as members of the same body are by one soul. There it is, dear one, not in your own strength, but in the strength of the spirit of God. As Christ, working by his word, gives you that faith, as he matures that faith, as he gives you that insatiable desire and thirst for the things of God, yes, you will come. But you will come not in your own strength, but that which he provides. Listen to Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship, 
Same word as communion. If any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill ye my joy and be ye like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. There it is, believer. You may express this common love for Christ, this common devotion to Christ, this common dependence upon Christ with all the Lord's people. We must be of one mind in this. For only as we share this communion with Christ may we have this communion with one.